John chapter 20. I love biographies. Uh, I love movies about people's lives. I love the books about people's lives and uh, podcasts, shows, etc. But there's a pretty natural ending place for just about every biography, no matter who you're talking about. And that is when that person dies. Now, there's usually some kind of little epilogue where they talk about, here's this person's legacy. Here's the difference that he or she made in the world. But the story ends when they die, not the biography of Jesus. There's two whole chapters after the death of Jesus in the book of John, and they are very essential chapters to the story of, of Jesus and to the story of the world. So with that brief introduction, let's get started with verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now other Gospels mention other women being there with Mary. That does not contradict John. John does not say that, that Mary the mother of James or Salome or Joanna or anybody else wasn't with Mary Magdalene. He's just choosing to focus on Mary Magdalene. Like I've said before, it's useful to read all four Gospels and to get the full story, just like, uh, this may be a bad analogy, but just like if uh, a, a, an investigator was investigating a crime scene, they would want to talk to everybody who witnessed it. They'd want to see the whole range of eyewitness testimony so they'd get the full picture, and that's the case here. John focuses on Mary Magdalene for good reason, which we're going to look at. Now, there's several questions I'm going to try to answer in this passage, and the first one is in your notes. Why did they, I say they because we know Mary was not alone, why did they go to the tomb? Uh, somebody asked this last week, in fact, uh, after we left. Why did they go to the tomb when we know from John that Nicodemus and, uh, and the other, gosh, I can't even remember his name now, Joseph Arimathea, yeah. You know, Larry of Wisconsin, I don't know. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea and, and, and Nicodemus had already anointed him with 75 pounds of herbs and spices and, and had wrapped him up in cloths. Why would they go to the tomb? And I think there's two possible answers. The first one's not likely, and that is they didn't know that he'd already been anointed. They thought something had been left undone. They thought, well, the, the Sabbath started so quickly after he died, maybe they didn't have a chance to handle his body correctly. I doubt that. It's possible, but I doubt it. My belief, and it's purely in my opinion, is that they went simply because they, they needed to do something. People grieve differently. Some people just want to go and sit in a dark place and be alone. Some people need to be around others. Some people need to stay active. Some of you are this way. When you're in grief, you need to be active. And I think that may be the case with these women, uh, Mary Magdalene among them, that they needed to do something. And, and the fact that their grief was so profound could have, could have clouded their logical thinking. They, I know you and I can understand this. They say you shouldn't make any decisions when you're in a time of grief, any big decisions. That's not the time to say, yeah, I'm just going to sell the house and move somewhere else. I guess I'll just I'll get married again. This, this person seems interested in me, and, and I don't want to be alone. So Don't do that, right? Because you're in grief. You're not, you're not uh, in your right mind. It's very possible these women weren't really thinking clearly, that they were sitting there weeping on that Saturday, uh, that, that Sunday morning, and one of them said, let's go down to the tomb. 
Let's just go see what we can do. Yes, let's do that. Because we know, we know they weren't thinking clearly because one of the other Gospels tells us that on their way there, it's one of the more poignant notes in this whole story, on their way there, they started saying, wait, who's going who's gonna to roll away the stone for us? How are we even going to get to Him? Oh, well, let's just go anyway. They, weren't, they didn't have it all planned out. So, verse 2. After they had seen that the stone was rolled away from the tomb, she didn't look inside. It says, verse 2, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who we believe is John. And they said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, this is just my opinion, but I always laugh at that verse because I think, I bet that drove Peter crazy, <laughs> that he lost that race. Peter always seemed to want to be the first. Verse 5 says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So I think the fact that these two disciples ran to the tomb in the early morning hours is significant. We don't think anything of it when we see an adult man run because there are all kinds of reasons why that could be happening. Uh, for one thing, he could be trying to get back in shape or he could be uh, in a hurry. But in this culture, running was seen as undignified. This may sound funny, but it wasn't funny at the time. The reason why is because when you ran, it showed your legs, right? You, you wore these, these, these long garments, and in order to run, you had to gather them up. You, you hear in the, in the Scripture sometimes, he girded up his loins. Well, that's what that means. You, you gather that, those, that robe, that outer garment, and you tuck it under your belt so that you were free to run. Well, then everybody could see your legs, and that's not dignified. I think, ladies, can we all agree men's legs aren't dignified even today? But men today don't care. Back then they did. These two disciples, the fact that they ran to the tomb says there was a sense of urgency. They didn't know what happened. They weren't sure whether to believe Mary or not and these other women, but they, they knew something had happened and they had to see it. So they ran to the tomb. Now why? You notice there's great detail about the condition of the grave clothes. John doesn't have to include that detail. He could have just said they looked in and Jesus wasn't there. Or they, they could have said, they looked in and grave clothes were there, but Jesus wasn't. But instead, this great detail about the linen cloths are lying there, and the face cloth is somewhere separate. The reason why that's important is it's not consistent with a grave robbery. I know you probably don't want to think this way, but if you were to steal a body from a grave, I hope you've never thought about that, but if you were you would either take the body as it was, or if you, for whatever reason, didn't want the cloth on the body, you would unwrap the body, and then you'd throw it off to the side. What you wouldn't do is carefully fold it. So, what I picture from this is, 
the wrappings around Jesus, remember it was, long, it was strips of cloth they wrapped all the way around, was still lying there as if his body had just kind of zipped through it. It was still together. And then the face cloth, a, a separate cloth that covered his face, was by itself folded. John includes that detail to say, whoever did this took their time. They weren't in a hurry. They weren't rushed. They didn't feel urgent. That was Jesus. That wasn't someone who snuck in and stole the body. That's not what you would do. And at this point, that is all Peter and John know. They look in, they see this, and they say, well, he's not here, but that doesn't look like something that would happen if grave robbers came and took his body. And so it's interesting that John says that he saw and believed, and yet the very next verse says, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So that tells me John believed something good had happened. He wasn't quite ready to say it was resurrection. Maybe he assumed Jesus had ascended to heaven. I don't know. But he knew Jesus was not in that tomb, and it wasn't because someone had stolen the body. So in verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you've laid Him, and I will take Him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to Him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and your Father, to My God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Now the first thing right out of the box, if you are a doubter in the reality of the resurrection, or if you know someone who is, and you probably do, one of the great sort of indirect proofs that this really happened is the way this story is told. If the church was making up the story of the resurrection, if it was all just a tale in order to start a new religion, they would not have made up the detail that Mary was the one who found him. Not necessarily because of anything wrong with Mary, but the fact that in that culture, the, the testimony of women was not accepted. Literally, I mean, this is almost comical, but if, if a woman gave testimony in a, in a court, her husband had to corroborate her testimony or it was not accepted. So that's the kind of world they lived in. And so if you were making up a story, you would not make a woman the primary eyewitness. You just wouldn't. So for me, that's one of the many details about the resurrection story that gives it credence. It gives it legitimacy. Uh, now, what do we know about Mary? This is important because there's a lot of misinformation about Mary that's out there. First of all, she was from the town of Magdala. That's where she got her name. People didn't have last names back then. You were either John, son of Zebedee, or you were uh, Jesus of Nazareth, right? So it was either where you were from or who your father was. She was from the town of Magdala. Now, um, I've actually been to Magdala on, on a couple of our trips to Israel. It's a 
it's not a town anymore, but they've uncovered the, the, uh, the ruins. It's a real interesting story about how they found them, by the way, but I'll, I'll tell you that another time. Found the ruins. It's just across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. And what they discovered when they uncovered these ruins about 10 years ago is Magdala was, for its time, a very prosperous town. Lots of nice houses. Houses, okay, I don't know if this is going to mean anything to you, but houses that had ritual baths installed in the, in the, in the house. So uh, for the Jews to go into worship, they had to get clean. If they were ritually unclean, they had to, they had to anoint themselves. They had to baptize themselves, so to speak. Uh, and so uh, you did that in a place called a mikvah, which is a ritual bath, or a body of water. Well, this is right on the Sea of Galilee. So you don't need to have your own private bath. You've got the sea right there. These people were wealthy enough that a lot of them built those just for their own convenience. I don't want people to have to see me going down there and getting all washed up. I'm going to do it in my own house, right? So a very prominent, prosperous town and a very devout town. Second thing we know, and this might surprise you, Mary had money. She was, uh, you might say, independently wealthy. We don't know if she was married and her husband was well off, or maybe she had been married and he had left her an inheritance. We don't know, but she was listed in the Gospels as one of the women who financially supported Jesus' ministry. All the money he had essentially came from donations, and they were his patrons, and she was one of them. Number three, we know, it's probably the most famous thing about Mary, that she was delivered by Jesus from seven demons. We don't know how those demons manifested themselves in her life, in the Gospels, we see sometimes demons manifest in such a way that it seems like epilepsy. At other times, it's uh, physical infirmity like uh, deafness or blindness or muteness. Sometimes it seems like psychosis or some other mental illness. Uh, but it definitely was none of those things. It was a demon in these cases. And when Jesus cast out the demon, they were well. So with Mary, hate to speculate, but with seven different demons, it could have been all of those things put together. It could have been several things all at once. I think we can safely say that before she met Jesus, her life was miserable. If you can imagine some force of absolute evil dwelling inside of you and you can't get it out, how bad that would be, and yet Jesus delivered her from that. He healed her. The other thing we know about Mary, she stayed by Jesus' side when all but one of His male disciples had fled. Now you might say, well... The, the authorities weren't looking for her. They were looking for the male disciples. That may be true. Still, it shows an incredible amount of loyalty, an incredible amount of courage on her part that she stayed by his side until the very end. Number five, and this is important. She is often incorrectly depicted as a prostitute. In a lot of movies, in paintings from the Middle Ages on, she's depicted in that way. And the reason why, again, is tragic and funny at the same time. One of the popes, I can't remember which one, in a sermon, got mixed up and identified her with the, the fallen woman, the sinful woman who anointed Jesus with oil. And I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I believe the, the Catholic Church is just as Christian as we are, and, and you know, God's going to work it out in the end. But you know, when a pope says it, it kind of sticks, even if he's wrong. And so that's where that whole tradition came from. And isn't that a shame that this, 
This woman has been uh, tainted by a simple mistake, an error, hundreds of years ago. There's no evidence that she was uh, at all an immoral person in, in a sexual sense. So just know that that idea is not biblical. So that's Mary. Why? Here's a, here's a tougher question. Why didn't she recognize Jesus? She's standing there in the garden. By the way, I find it moving. The male disciples have gone home. John and Peter go back. They're mumbling to themselves. I don't know where that body is. She's still there. She's still weeping. Jesus walks up to her. Why doesn't she recognize Him? This man she knows better than anybody on earth. All right, so here's my theory. Number one, she was weeping. And remember, in America and in Western countries, we have this idea that there's supposed to be a dignity about our grief. We say this when we go to a funeral and we see somebody who's very calm and stoic, and we say, oh, she's doing so well. Or if they're falling apart, oh, man, she's just not doing well at all. And that's not really true, right? You can be falling apart emotionally, and that can be completely appropriate. The, the Middle Eastern world doesn't have the same ideas that we have where, okay, got to get it together. I'm going out in public now. No, you've seen video of tragedies in the Middle East even today. The absolute grief, the wailing, right? And we think, look at that and go, how weird. And yet, that's the way they grieved. I don't know that they're not healthier in how they handle grief than we are. So keep in mind, when it says Mary was weeping, it doesn't mean she was Hollywood crying where you got a single tear running down. You know, you don't, your face doesn't get red, your eyes don't get puffy. She was weeping, distraught. It was also dawn. So the light wasn't perfect. Maybe even still been darker than light. Verse 14 says that she turned towards him. That indicates that when he stepped out of whatever shadows he was in, she wasn't looking directly at him. And fourth, and most importantly, resurrection was not on her mind. It wasn't on any of their minds. Y'all know, I hope, while the Jews believed in a general resurrection of the dead someday, at the end of time, of the day of the Lord, and they looked forward to it, I should say most of the Jews, the Sadducees didn't. I won't do my bad joke about that. But, um, but nobody, there was no tradition, there was no uh, legend, there was no expectation that an individual person, even the Messiah, would rise from the dead by himself. So this was nothing anybody expected except Jesus. So when Jesus walks out of the shadows and Mary's weeping and her eyes are nearly swollen shut from weeping and, and it's dark and she's not looking at him and she hears a sound, she sees something off to the side and she just asks him, have you, have you taken him? Have you taken away his body? She doesn't really look at him until she hears her name in his voice. She hears the name Mary. And that, that leads to another question. Why does John leave that word Rabboni in the original Aramaic? You see this in some of the other Gospels more frequently, especially Matthew, since it's written to a more Jewish audience. Uh, they, they leave uh, that, the Aramaic untranslated every once in a while when it's a significant word. John is written to a mostly Gentile audience. So why does he leave this word there? Why doesn't he translate it into Greek like all the rest? Because Rabboni doesn't just mean teacher. 
It means beloved teacher. It means esteemed teacher. It means the teacher of my heart. It's, it's, it shows deep affection. Um, and then finally, in this section, when he says, hey, don't cling to me. Isn't that curious? Have you ever wondered about that? Why doesn't he want her to cling to him? I, when I used to read that, I used to think, oh, should she not touch him? Which doesn't seem right since we're about to see him tell Thomas to touch my hand, touch my feet, touch my side. So why does he say, don't cling to me? Notice why. He says, because I'm, I'm going to my father. So I think what he's saying is not, don't touch me. I think what he's saying is, I know you're glad to see me and I'm glad to see you. Just don't hang on to my physical form because I'm not going to be here for long. The Spirit's coming. He's going to be even better. But the fact that I'm risen from the dead doesn't mean like that everything's going to go back to the way it was before I died. Don't cling to this. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to break your heart. Don't cling to this because I'm ascending to my Father soon. I think that's what he's saying. Now, one of my favorite stories from another preacher, and I don't even know the preacher's name, he told about growing up in the 50s in some town in the Midwest, and uh, he was in junior high, and there was a, a time during the school year when part of their school day was dancing lessons. It's hard for me to imagine much that would be worse when I'm a junior high boy than the fact that every day, knowing they're going to clear the desks and you're going to have to practice dancing. You know, that, that's got to be terrifying uh, and awkward. And every day, one kid would get to choose. Yeah, and, and to make matters worse, especially for the girls, they would ask, it, it was like choosing up sides in kickball, right? It was like, okay, you know, Billy, you choose first. Okay, which girl you want to dance with? And right on down the line. And you know... You know girls are thinking, please don't, please don't pick me last. Well, there was one little girl that got picked last every single time. And her name was Louise. And she wasn't all that pretty. And she was a little, little chubby. And she had a bad leg. And so she wasn't graceful. And she always got picked last. Awkward, awkward little Louise. The, the, kid, the guy telling the story, his name was Dan. He was in that class. He knew that his day to choose was coming up. Now, the teacher's aide... There was a man in the class who was just an aide to the teacher, happened to be his Sunday school teacher at church. And so the Sunday before it was going to be Dan's turn, he said to him, Hey, Dan, don't you think when it's your turn you ought to choose Louise first? Now put yourself in the shoes of little Dan, right? It's bad enough you've got to go through this horrible ritual, but at least the one saving grace is you know that one time you're going to get your choice. And if you're like most junior high boys, like 99% of junior high boys, you've got no chance with any of those girls. But one time, you can pick the prettiest girl in the class, and you can see her eyes light up when you say her name. That'll be the only time in your old wretched life that will ever happen. But you've got that chance right then. And he, he went home, and he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he thought, well, he's right. So... You know, the day comes, and they clear off the desks, and he, the boys line up, and the girls line up, and they're all standing there trying to, trying to look their best, and there's Louise off in the back, just kind of looking off to the side. Just get this over with, she's thinking. And he says, I choose Louise. And, and if you can just picture this girl, her, her face just lights up, and she practically skips over to him because in her wildest dreams, she never thought this would happen. 
And I love, love that story because that's a preacher telling the story. You know his point, right? That God chooses the people we wouldn't choose. He delights to choose the people we wouldn't choose. That's not to say that Mary Magdalene was uh, physically unattractive. We don't know what she looked like. That's not to say she was socially awkward. We don't know that. But in that culture, God, no human would have chosen her for that responsibility. Choose one of the disciples. Choose Peter, right? No, he chooses the person we wouldn't choose. And that's beautiful. That's one of many signs of grace. Verse 19. On evening of that day, the first day of the week, so it's still Easter Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Remember what I said earlier, the the Sanhedrin, I believe, uh, didn't want to stone Jesus to death. They wanted the, the Romans to put Him to death because of the shame associated with crucifixion and also because they wanted them to therefore declare Christianity, it wasn't called that then, but the Jesus movement, an illegal movement, and that would mean they'd round up all the disciples too. So the disciples saw this happen. They knew the plan of the Sanhedrin was going right according to their their hopes and dreams, and so they figured sooner or later they're going to come get us. So the doors are locked, they're terrified, you and I would be too. With the doors locked, For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. This is another one of those scenes that I find humorous, is just to imagine that all of a sudden Jesus is just there. And don't you know they all hit the roof? They all just, it just startled them to no end. He says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think that's one of the great understatements that's ever been written. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now every one of Jesus' listed appearances has a purpose. Uh, we, we assume, because there was about 40 days where He appeared to the disciples, we assume that He was with them other times that we don't know about. But the ones that are mentioned, the ones that are listed in the Gospels, they're not random. They're not just Jesus hanging out. The purpose of this appearance was not just to say, it's true, I'm risen. It's another version of the Great Commission. So the Great Commission we all know in, in Matthew 28 Go therefore into all the world, uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I'll be with you always until the end of the age. And we think, oh, that's beautiful. Jesus is just about to ascend into heaven, and He tells them, okay, here's your mission. What a lot of people don't realize is there's another version of that in Mark, and another version of that in Luke, and here's a fourth version in John. And all of them are told in such a way that they couldn't all be the same story. It's not that uh, Mark just reported the same event with different words. They're all in different settings. This one is on Easter Sunday in the upper room. So what that tells us is Jesus said virtually the same thing to His disciples at least four times. Now why would He do that? Have you ever raised children? Have you ever managed employees? Have you ever taught a class? 
It'll humble you quickly to realize people do not hang on your every word. They get distracted. They walk away and forget. Jesus wanted them to remember, this is your mission. So here's, here's what Jesus is saying to them in this, in this version of the Great Commission. First of all, He says, peace be with you. Shalom. We've said this many, many times. Peace in, in Israelite thought and Hebrew thought is very, very different, much more meaningful than just the way we say peace. I use this analogy on Easter Sunday. Um, we would say if three people live together and two of them are always fighting, the third might say, I got to get out of here and get some peace. That's our version of peace. It's walking away so I don't have to hear them arguing. The, the Israelite, the Hebrew version of shalom is when those two reconcile. And there's peace in that home because they're not fighting anymore. So that's what Jesus is saying is, I, I am giving you my shalom, my peace. And the implication is so you can carry it to others. Because the next thing he says is, as the Father sent me, so I send you. I've never heard a sermon on that sentence. You may have. But it occurs to me that uh, I shouldn't have been a preacher this long without preaching a sermon on that, on that sentence. Because it's so significant. Because of, of what it tells us about what Christian ministry is supposed to be. The Father sent me, so I send you. What did the Father send Jesus to do? To be our Savior, yes, but to be His incarnate presence in the world. Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a teacher. He was God in human flesh. He was God among us. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out in the same way. They won't see me, but they're going to see you. You be the incarnate presence of me in the presence of everybody you know. That's Christian ministry. That's what it means to live as a witness in the world. Uh, you know, with all due respect for all the different evangelism techniques we've used down through the years, and they've, many of them have been very useful and powerful, but what it comes down to in the end is, are you incarnating Jesus in the presence of people who don't know Him? Because you can have the best technique in the world, you can be a master salesman with the gospel and it's worth nothing if they don't see Jesus in us. So that's, that's what Jesus is sending them out to do. And then He says, interestingly, receive the Holy Spirit. Now we know that a few weeks from this, on the day of Pentecost, that's when that actually happens. When the Holy Spirit comes and alights on those early uh, followers of Jesus and they're able to speak in these languages they haven't studied or learned. That's the day of Pentecost. That's the day the Holy Spirit becomes uh, indwelling in the hearts of humans. Jesus right here is essentially saying, grab hold of Him when He comes to you. When you are given the Holy Spirit, receive Him. And then the last part of it is this, this statement about forgiveness, which can so easily be misconstrued. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness for any, it is withheld. One of those many verses of the Bible which you must not take out of context because it's quite clear from the rest of the Bible. No human being has the ability to deny somebody else salvation. If I don't like somebody, I can't say, oh, no, 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 no. You believe in Jesus with all your heart, but I don't like you, so you, I withhold forgiveness from you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What He's saying is, I am giving you the power and the authority to declare forgiveness, to share this good news. When you take forgiveness to these people and they receive it, they will truly be forgiven. If you don't give it to them, they're not going to hear it. So 
share this word, share this message, this salvation that I've given you, that I died to bring you. All right, now let's go on to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, what do we know about Thomas? This isn't the only story about Thomas in the Bible, although it is by far the most famous. There are two other stories about Thomas in the Gospel of John. The first one is found in John 11, when they are told that Lazarus is dying, and Jesus says, let's wait a while, and then Lazarus dies, and Jesus says, okay, let's go to Bethany and see him. And the disciples are, are saying, well, we don't understand, Lord, why would we go now? I mean, they're going to they want to kill you there, and it's too late to do any good for him, so why do you want to go now? And Thomas steps up and says, well, let us also go with him that we may die with him. Which you can read as either kind of a fatalistic attitude, we're all going to die anyway, so we might as well die now, or courage and devotion. And I choose to read it that way. I choose to read it as, as Thomas saying, hey, if Jesus is going and we don't go with him, we might as well die because... We've put everything in Him. We've put all our eggs in His basket. So if He's going to go die, we might as well die with Him rather than dying apart from Him. Let's go with Him. Then in verse 14, famous, famous saying in verse 6 of chapter 14, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know why Jesus said that? Because He has just gotten through saying, I go there to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. And only Thomas is practical enough to raise his hand and say, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. You don't need a roadmap. You don't need instructions because you have me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So what those stories tell us in very brief form is that Thomas is devoted to Jesus, that he's highly practical, that he asks questions. Given that information, it's not surprising that he doesn't believe his ten friends when they say Christ is risen. It's too good to be true. I need proof. And you need to know that nowhere in Scripture is he called Doubting Thomas. That's a name we made up. And I think it's a little unfair, honestly. Now, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This, this statement, My Lord and my God, is is remarkable. It's the first time anybody said anything quite like that to or about Jesus. And so it, it just shows this incredible, incredible turnabout for Thomas that now his eyes are fully opened and he understands for the first time just how good the good news is. It's far, far better than even he hoped. But then Jesus' statement about what it is to be blessed. What is the blessed life according to Jesus? It's interesting. He says, the people who are blessed, and let's just clarify, blessed is not just a spiritual sounding word. 
the closest thing we have to our in the English language to the to the real meaning of blessed is a really lousy word that we use called lucky, right? We say lucky like if somebody uh, if somebody wins the lottery, we'd say, oh, what a lucky guy. If somebody gets a raise, what a lucky guy. Well, that's what the term blessed means. That's the closest we have to the term blessed, which is a way of saying God has shown favor to you. God has given you the life, the good life. So what is the good life according to Jesus? It's believing without proof. Think about that. To live the blessed life is to be able to believe God without solid proof, without rock-solid, 100% unimpeachable proof. And what that means is that you believe the resurrection, although you've never seen Jesus in human flesh. I don't think any of you have. It means that when life goes south as it is wont to do, you believe God's still in control, even though you can't see how He could be. You can't see any evidence that He is. And yet you're able to say, yeah, but God doesn't slumber or sleep. So His ways are different than mine. His thoughts are higher. I'm just going to trust Him. That's believing without seeing. It's, it's doing what you know it's right, what, what you know is right, even when it's costly, even when it takes sacrifice, even when it would be so much easier to go with the crowd, you stand up for what's right. That's the blessed life. Because those are the things that you'll never regret. Those are the things that you'll never go back and say, I wish I hadn't been so insistent on sticking with Jesus in those difficult moments. I wish I would have conformed to the crowd. You'll never say that. That's the blessed life. So Jesus isn't rebuking Thomas when He says, uh, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believed. He's telling us, He's telling us, listen, you won't get in this life to have that experience that Thomas had, that he could see me and, and touch my hands and my side and then just be convinced. And, and you may think, oh man, I wish I could have that experience. But Jesus says, you're more blessed because you didn't have that experience. Because you're, you're learning true faith the kind of faith that you're going to need uh, in order to, to live the life that I want you to live. And the good news is, in the new earth, we will get to see and we will get to experience that. But that, I'll get to that in just a minute. So, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. That's, that's a very tantalizing verse right there. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And that verse is probably uh, for the lazy Bible student. That is the second favorite verse in the Gospel of John. Their favorite is Jesus wept um, because it's easy to memorize. The second favorite is this one because when their teacher says, hey, what is the purpose of the Gospel of John? They say, aha, he told us right here. Here's why he wrote this book. He wrote it so that people would believe and through believing have life. Now the last question. Why did Jesus still have scars? Jesus rose from the dead. He still looked like Jesus. He seems to have some new abilities. I, we've never seen Him walk through walls before. 
Later, he's going to ascend into heaven. That's something else we hadn't seen him do. But he's still got those scars in his hands and his feet and his side. Why? And the only answer I have is it's a constant reminder of our salvation. And I think it's a beautiful thought that uh, in, in glory, we're not going to be floating in some ether. We're not going to be, please listen to me, we're not going to be angels any more than we're going to be golden retrievers. Um, we're not going to be angels. We're going to have real bodies. The Bible doesn't say what these bodies will look like, in my opinion, because Jesus still looked like Jesus. I think we'll still look like us. And if you're disappointed about that, you're not going to be as vain there as you are here. And neither will I, and neither will anybody else. But what the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians 15, it uses four adjectives for the bodies we will have. It says imperishable. They won't die. They won't get sick. They won't uh, wear out. Uh, maybe, we'll, maybe it'll be possible to get injured, but it'll heal. Imperishable. Number two, glorious. Be reflective of the glory of God. And without sin, right? Glorious means sinless. Then third, powerful. I don't know what that word means, but I'm excited to find out. What abilities will I have in my new body that I don't have now? I mean, it doesn't do any good to speculate, but it doesn't hurt anything either. So it, that's the kind of thing that's fun to daydream about. Because like, like everything else about heaven, daydream about heaven is a safe activity because you can't outdream God's imagination. It's not like we're going to get there and, and look around and go, oh, doggone it, I thought I was going to be able to. Because what the reality will be will be so much better than what we imagined. So our bodies will be powerful. And that's an exciting thought. Play with that in your mind. Enjoy that thought. And then finally it says that our bodies will be spiritual. Which doesn't mean that they'll be spirits uh, because we will have flesh and blood bodies like Jesus. It means we will have the ability to stand in the presence of God. Right now we have natural bodies, sin-stained bodies. We can't stand in the presence of God of God, but there we will be able to. Our bodies will be spiritual. That's 1 Corinthians 15. So, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, although other people share it, I'm just saying I can't prove this. In my opinion, the bodies we have will be flawless. So, your knee surgery scar won't be there. Uh, the, the pock marks you had because you picked your scabs when you had chicken pox, that'll be gone. Whatever. Whatever, it'll all be gone. And so if that's true, the only scars in that world will be the scars that Jesus bears. And then that beautiful thought, because we'll see him, and every time we see him, I think that's what we're gonna want to look at. Because that's why we're there, right? We wouldn't be there without what those scars represent. They'll be the most beautiful thing in the whole place, aside from the presence of God the Father Himself. And on that note, let's pray. Yes. Yes. Yes, I will.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight and for the truth that we've seen. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of what it means for our future, but just as importantly, for the salvation we have right now. Lord, help us to walk in that hope of eternal life, to live out that uh, fact that we're seated in heavenly places with you right now. Lord, we lift up the people in our community who've been affected by the storm yesterday. We pray, Lord, for the families of those two men who died and, and those who've been injured. We pray for their full recovery, for healing. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for a great revival in our land in these days. And we lift these things before you in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.